Pantheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. It's February 26th, 2017, and we are reflecting on our interview with Rick Doblin, Alex Gray, and Allison Gray, recorded at Burning Man 2016. So it's been uh, a few months since Burning Man. We're, are, we, are we at the halfway point yet to, uh, until the man burns again? Just about. I think because tickets are going to go on sale soon. That's usually like a six-month marker. Yeah, so um, it's been, you know, we've had a little bit of time to reflect. And uh, I mean, just how awesome is it that we got to get, uh, basically pack ourselves into a very small RV with three of our heroes um, at, at Burning Man? I mean, just, yeah. wow, awesome. Yeah, that was yeah. definitely uh, definitely quite the day from beginning to end. <laughs> Pretty amazing. And uh, even just just finding them was the beginning <laughs> of the adventure. <laughs> Their camp is huge. Yeah, I mean, for for anyone who's been to Burning Man, you know, it can be certainly pretty pretty hard to uh, coordinate plans to you know find people's camps to meet up at a certain time. You might get to a camp and somebody forgot what day it is and uh you know and, and you sort of leave word on a chalkboard um and it's it's that sort of environment uh nobody's wearing a watch and uh having you know calendar alerts pop up on their phone uh and so it can be kind of hard to uh, to coordinate and track people down and uh you know not only that but we you may have a camp address like we did you know we knew that they were staying at uh, reformation village uh, you know, with the Dr. Bronner's uh, crew and the MAPS crew. And, uh, we, you know, we were looking for Alex and Allison's um, RV, which was, you know, camped yeah. somewhere <laughs> among, I don't know, what would you say, hundreds of other yeah, it's, RVs? It's like a, it, it's like an old role-playing game where you talk to one person and you get a little bit of information or misinformation, and then you just follow the clue to, like, the next you know, breakthrough of RVs and, and it basically we walked in circles for about 45 minutes. Right. And, and like you said, <laughs> the misinformation comes into play when somebody says, I think that they're at the Miley Cyrus concert at the trash fence. Uh, at least that's where they <laughs> were, you know, six hours yeah. ago or something. Yeah, like, I was, I, I was going to say, apart from like the inherent difficulties in finding somebody and everything, there's, there's also the, the whole like Burning Man, like prankster, you know, Joe, sense Trickster, of humor where yeah. it's like, like we love lying to people and sending them on ridiculous missions. Right. And, and I feel like that camp is big enough that some people wouldn't even have known that Alex and Allison Gray or Rick Doblin were camping with them. Right. And yeah. could have thought that they were getting messed with. Like, <laughs> right. Like, oh, yeah. Our campmate, Alex Gray, is right over there. Yeah, they're with uh, Sasquatch getting foamed right now. <laughs> By the way, I think somebody should explain uh, Reformation Village to our listeners. Uh, well, I've, I've never had the opportunity to do it. Um, I understand what it is conceptually, but Kev, I think you've, you've actually I, 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 I will do the honors. Yeah, I I've actually w was at that camp the previous year as well with a couple friends. And uh, so when we were going to do the interview there, I was pretty excited about that. Uh, but we had actually ended up in the RV and whatnot. But uh, but the day or the day after or at the end of the week um, – Joe, Joe, and I, and a few other people went over to back over to Reformation Village, and uh, and actually went into the camp, which is so cool. It's like, it's like a big, 
it's like a massive tent with uh, with basically these like shower installations that you know it, it, if you wait for in line for the whole thing it's basically like you have to go through a series of challenges to get in it's really well done but once you get inside it's basically a bunch of people stripping naked uh, and then getting in, into a big line and going up into a shower together uh, in which they are uh, first sprayed with water and then heavily foamed with some Dr. Bronner's uh, almond smelling soap and uh, it's just about the best feeling in the world when you've been in the desert for days and days with the heat and uh, lack of showers and whatnot. Uh, and then, of course, there's a DJ spinning music. And then Alex and Allison Gray were doing a live painting at the time, and they were both naked as well. <laughs> kind of, kind of uh, an exciting uh, event. So we arrive in the midst of all this mayhem with, uh, you know, rolling a, a, a wheeled uh, Pelican case full of, uh, you know, audiovisual equipment and uh, and sort of just, you know, at the time, Alex and Allison were not painting on stage, so they were a little bit harder to find. Uh, Rick Doblin, you know, was just somewhere. Uh, we, you know, we had really no idea where to find him. Uh, so we kind of just were wandering around this camp for, for a little while, um, just trying to put the pieces together and find, you know, someone we knew who could lead us to someone else we knew who could lead us to the, uh, the guests that we were planning to interview. And, uh, you know, in the midst of all this mayhem, we're, we're sort of saying, you know, we have a scheduled interview with Rick Doblin, <laughs> Alex Gray, and Allison Gray. And uh, it just looks ridiculous, you know, that we're sort of like, we're this like AV crew, you know, coming through this, uh, this party environment. And uh, Yeah, exactly. We're the so. squares, like trying to adhere to <laughs> a, a previous commitment. Separate challenges of finding the RV and finding the people. We did have some te technical difficulties uh, to to contend with, like you know, recording inside of an RV. We knew the space would be a little bit of a concern, but we figured we would just get cozy, no big deal. But of course, also it's extremely hot uh, in the desert, and so um, you know, it gets really hot inside an RV, inside a vehicle, and uh, we therefore had to keep the uh, air conditioning running. And uh, the, it, the audio recording was just horrendous. I mean, it, you know, it, it, there in person, it's a little bit harder to hear the, uh, the extent of the background noise because you're kind of just there and you have the background noise uh, in the environment. Um, it was hard to kind of isolate it in person. But in retrospect, the recording was just terrible, terrible quality, uh, as evidenced by the, uh, the first release of the episode. Uh, but we had uh, some amazing uh, audio help, audio engineering help from a great friend of ours, uh, Rod. So thank you so much, Rod, for doing that. Um, it was just a really, uh, really crucial to uh, to being able to put out a recording we you know we can be somewhat proud of. So thanks again. Somewhat proud of that was ridiculous. That whole interview is a crazy experience. I'm extremely proud of that. Audio quality wise, I just qualify <laughs> no, that because the whole thing was, was amazing. But the audio quality was almost devastating, and 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 Rod uh, yeah. came to our rescue. So it's amazing. Well, it's also funny how it started, right? It was like we we wanted to get like get set up and then start the interview, but Rick Doblin uh, wasn't there yet, and then we found out he was like in line, like waiting to get foamed. <laughs> And uh, so we just started just having a normal chat with Alex and Allison that it quickly turned on to the topics we wanted to cover in the interview. So Joe started hastily hooking microphones up to everybody and trying to get the whole thing, uh, the whole thing recorded. And uh, and then at one point, the, the recently foamed Rick Doblin enters the conversation uh, sparkling. And uh, that was just it was just really fun. That's that's the way I remember it as being. like. Yeah. A great conversation with with you know just some 
amazing people, but also just so much fun. It, it really was. And I, I think, you know, what was most special about the experience to me, there was one moment at the very end where uh, Rick and Alex lean across the table and they have kind of a private moment. And, they, you know, and Alex just thanks him for his time and for coming over. And it was, and I got a perspective of, uh, you know, I felt like the, the greatest value that we that we brought was providing that space and giving them a reason for old friends to come together and kind of talk candidly, because that's how I felt about the show. It felt like a, a chat amongst old friends. And, you know, I felt good about us just being able to, to bring them together in that way. Yeah I, yeah, I totally agree, Brad. At one point, Alex was uh, was thanking me, you know, for for the opportunity and everything. And I'm and I'm just thinking this is like a complete role re- reversal. Like, you know, we're, we should be thanking yeah. them, you know. And, uh, and you know, and I commented to him how we had this whole outline prepared. It was like two pages long with all these questions. We just, you know, were burning to ask uh, all three of the guests, and uh, it just kind of went out the window, uh, you know, when we were just rolling with it, you know, just kind of in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I remarked to him that we had this whole show outline prepared and, and we basically, I don't think we checked a single item off the list, uh, but nonetheless, it was, uh, a, you know, quite enjoyable conversation just to kind of almost be a fly on the wall to, uh, to their, uh, you know, catching up. And, um, and it was, I mean, we did provide that opportunity because they probably, you know, they may very well have not gotten together because there's so many other competing you know, sort of things to do and, and uh, just, you know, fun, serendipitous kind of encounters at Burning Man that uh, it's hard to make those kinds of plans. So they all, you know, we were very honored that they all did uh, commit to, um, you know, joining us for, for an episode of Entheogen. And uh, we're just very honored to be able to get them all together to have that chat. I'm also struck and I'm, I'm struck in general by the overwhelming majority of people uh, in this movement, specifically people who have uh, some sort of important role, as in this case where we, you know, we always call Alex Gray sort of the high priest of the movement and Rick Dalu would be sort of like the, the president, right? right. It's uh, so, you know, there's just an overwhelming um, humility that these people have. It's like they're just very, very humble people. Um, so it's just very easy to talk to them and very easy to feel comfortable and very easy to get into like a, a very good conversation where you you just you just feel extremely comfortable. Um, and I feel like it's something that time and time again, I see as we go go about interviewing people and it's um, it's not normal in the rest of the world. <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not normal in other circles. And it's something I really, really appreciate. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, psychedelics probably tend to be sort of like pretense obliterating uh, substances. Yeah. You know, these people just are very real, personable, um, you know, folks. And, uh, you know, and, and I mean, to the point where they were just chatting about, you know, what the issues of the day, like Alex and Allison had been, you know, boarded by pirates, as, as I think Allison put it, uh, you know, upon entering uh, Black Rock City. Uh, and talked about their their tale of having to uh, to pay a fine for you know having uh, uh, you know smoked some some medicine some medicinal uh, cannabis um, on the way in. and you know it's like who who can't relate to these these types of stories and they're yeah. told by people you might consider to be you know heroes of your of your movement so it's uh, it, it was amazing and, and of course um, later Rick talked about I think smoking on on D, the D Playa uh, which is like a, a well known you know, uh, 
no 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 exactly <laughs> just no no it's like it's like we're in we're in an rv and i'm like these are these are like burning man virgin mistakes that i'm listening to right <laughs> yeah, here exactly. like rick Dolan smoking a dube on deep playa and then like alex and alice get busted for marijuana possession for like smoking in the car on the way there <laughs> going and seven driving, miles over the speed limit yeah right <laughs> come, on. come on you guys like that's uh we could have we could have like you know we could have helped you out with that you know <laughs> yeah that kind of that was like the 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 initial context for the conversation was talking about that and that experience and at one point it was it was cool how rick sort of turned it on his head and and you know said that while alex and allison gray had a challenge with the police here that you know he we as in zendo and maps um had had a breakthrough with the police and talked about how they've had the opportunity to train like all of the Rangers and the, the, the BLM folks and, you know, um, how not to, um, tranquilize or basically how to work with people who are high and how to get them help instead of like punish them and, and just de-escalate, right? De-escalate. Yeah. And just the opposite ends of the spectrum of like having a personal experience with the police and how that's, in one sense, seeming like it's stagnant and hasn't evolved. In another sense, it's very hopeful and indicative of the progress that's being made. Yeah, and I feel like after listening to Rick Doblin, I was uh, I just thought like, can we just make him in charge of all police in general? Like, we just you know, <laughs> just extend this program to the right. Re- no, and it's not a criticism in any way. I mean, uh, you know, they're it's a very hot topic right now but uh but i just think you know the the kind of the central tenets of sort of de-escalation and empathy uh are are kind of important uh you know important in the in the conversation and uh and again you you know you go back to these people being very humble they're also just uh they they sort of transmit or radiate um just a sort of deep humanity and empathy um and i think you know it's just it's it's hard not to hold them in such high esteem and it's not about uh, it's almost like you know psychedelics aside and the whole issue aside. It's I just I I'm <laughs> I'm just amazed at them at what great human beings they seem to be. Rick Rick, Rick Doblin. I mean Alex and Allison Gray. We've had uh, more contact with and for, for me personally, meeting Rick Doblin was a little bit uh, just a little bit overwhelming. You know, at least the idea the idea of meeting Rick Doblin. I thought it was going to be a little bit more. Uh, scary <laughs> you know it's like i was a little bit nervous about it before before then and he's just just a, just an easy guy to talk to and just uh comes across again with just such a great sense of humanity so to illustrate that example uh rick told the story i think kevin you you asked him about this this was maybe maybe this was the one exception to uh the the outline uh <laughs> being uh yeah. thrown out yeah, the window I mean, this is actually one thing we really wanted to talk about um, from, from the book, from, from, it was from an acid test, right? Is, uh, is yep. where you read the story of Rick's, you know, quote, beautiful breakup. And, uh, it just sounded like a ridiculous concept. So, uh, you asked him about it. Yeah. Well, it's also just this, you know, the, it just sounds absurd, right? Like you see those two words together and you go, what Be- beautiful breakup, you know, and it just jumped off the page at me as I was reading the book, uh, in preparation for the interview. And, uh, and he, he, you know, he 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 does go into some detail about it, but it was pretty cool for him to elaborate on it. And he just talked about uh, how they had taken MDA to, uh, to sort of have a deep uh, talk, and they they lied, uh, they they laid on the roof of his house and watched the stars. And uh, and I think Joe, you had the quote here that the the passage of the stars at night became the foreground, and our conversation became the background. 
and uh, and he's just sort of talked about how uh, kind of at the end of this conversation, they just realized that they were uh, just interested in doing different things and they had kind of different uh, different paths in their life at that moment and that being together was not the right path for them. Yeah, and it just was such a, um, you know, it, 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 interesting, uh, you know, different sort of attitude about, about that kind of situation. Just like that uh, ne- neither of the two were sort of trying too hard to, you know, force something they just sort of uh you know took the medicine and allowed it to guide them through the experience and they came out to a, a place they were both i guess you know happier with uh and then rick tells a story that actually um you know that that woman became the first uh one of the first board members of maps and i think he said he she was the like the chairwoman of the board or something like that like he's yeah. ba- she's basically his boss now so. yeah 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 <laughs> Again, humility and humanity and just across the board, right? I mean, like how many people would do something like that? Right. Yeah, that was that was an interesting conversation, too, between I think Allison was she framed it like, can I ask a druggy question? No. Right. Oh, where's this going to go? <laughs> um, but just the, you know, what is the difference between MDM, MDA and MDMA? Like effectually, like how does it affect you? Um, and it was cool just like. I might have had that question, but, you know, amongst these sort of leaders, I'm like, I'd be afraid to ask such a, I don't know, a, a, like, I appreciated her asking the question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, Rick was explaining how it, whereas MDMA can be more social and more present and more, um, you know, connecting MDA can be more psychedelic and you don't talk quite as much and that quote is great. Like the, the passage of the stars at night become the foreground, the conversation becomes the background, just, you know, that you can kind of let go and perceive yourself in the context of something larger. And, you know, to the degree that a a psychedelic experience can have that effect where it doesn't necessarily make you feel small and insignificant. It makes you feel connected and part of something larger but that the kind of drama, you know, that would go with a breakup or the kind of pain, um, like where does that come from? Where does that attachment come from and that pain? And, you know, an experience with MDA is um, somewhat ideal, you know, to have that frank, um, honest conversation without uh, having it taken too personally and painfully. So from there, we went a little bit into uh, psychedelics in the mainstream. Uh, you know, the, the context was, uh, you know, how come we more hasn't changed? How come it's yeah. taken 50 years to get to the point where, uh, you know, we're just beginning to reconsider, you know, cannabis uh, legalization for, you know, medicinal and recreational purposes. Uh, we're just beginning to research these substances again. And I mean, in the last, you know, five years or something like that, these substances being psychedelics, um, and, uh, you know, that's quite a long time to have this uh, just basically drought of, uh, of, you know, scientific research and, uh, and, and these substances have been so suppressed and we haven't been able to benefit from their therapeutic value. Um, and there, there have been all these fines and, and uh, you know, for, for people just basically partaking in, in medicinal herbs and things. And, uh, you know, Allison was, was expressing this, especially after their, uh, you know, having been... Uh, uh, fined by the police. Um, this was, I think, f- fresh in their mind. And, and so, um, Rick started talking about, you know, more, um, mainstream, the mainstreaming of, of some more sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, mystical, uh, topics, things like yoga, things like, uh, mindfulness in general, meditation, 
um, mm-hmm. which, you know, 50 years ago were certainly less mainstream, uh, a little bit more, you know, counterculture um, and alternative. And now these things are mainstream. There's a yoga, uh, you know, studio uh, on every street corner, practically. Yeah, um, float centers came up as an example of, you know, just the way social consciousness is changing and what we're prioritizing, kind of how we're spending our energy and our resources on things like float centers and uh, meditation. Right. In this context, you know, it's a little bit easier to to envision psychedelics also benefiting from this more sort of open-minded culture. Um, and, uh, and, and we are seeing that in, in the research being done and so on. And I guess Alex brought up the... Uh, concept of uh miley cyrus um you know <laughs> being a somewhat uh, famous artist uh and and i guess you know being overtly psychedelic in in her work um yeah that was another great moment where in the middle of a sentence i was so excited of where this the, right. you know where, where that sentence was going to land like the culture has already been receptive to the cues even a very famous artist like and then that chasm of space and time miley right. cyrus like, right. oh <laughs> oh really <laughs> <laughs> Of all people. Uh, and then he goes on to mention, uh, you know, Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips, which, you know, he's been overtly psychedelic, I think, for quite a while, uh, for, what, 10 years or something like that. Um, who else did he mention? Uh, Aesop Rocky. Right. The hip-hop dude, as you mentioned hip-hop earlier. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It has a song called Love, Sex, Dreams, which, you know, immediately we're all like, oh, you know, it, the... It, it reminded us of the Beatles losing the sky with diamonds and that instantly turned like the topic on its head where I'm like, yeah, the culture has been receptive to the cues, but it seems like it's been that way for 50 years. You know, we've got a contemporary hip hop dude rapping about like kind of doing something in a socially um, advanced or provocative way, like the way the Beatles did. Brad, being in the, in the Bay Area, you know, do you what's the sort of word on the street? Like I, I get the sense and I'm all the way on the East coast here um, and uh, of the United States. And I'm, and I'm, you know, sort of reading about how psychedelics are becoming a little bit more mainstream, you know, especially the concept of microdosing and certainly of, you know, like basically ayahuasca tourism, um, you mm-hmm. know, with uh, in the technology industry, um, people are realizing the benefits of this therapy, you know, therapeutic, uh, you know, journey you can take with ayahuasca, um, you know, even other, other visionary substances, mystical substances, and, and, uh, then microdosing, uh, in the comfort of your own uh, office. So is yeah. that a real, you know, are you, are you hearing that trend in the street kind of thing or is um, this just, uh, I think, you know, well, the, when you say in the street, it, it evokes an image and a feeling and a smell, you know, and specifically like like marijuana use and like weed smoke and vapes are ubiquitous in the city. And I think there are there is a more of an openness of a conversation around psychedelics, like a lot of the things you mentioned, ayahuasca tourism, you know, the therapeutic aspects, the research, the um, um but the biggest thing that I think people who come from the East Coast and move to San Francisco that within the first couple of weeks, they're just completely taken aback by is like weed smoke is everywhere. And in a lot of the ways that Rick talked about uh, how the way we think about how the social acceptedness um, or the ability to do research or to use it as medicine for things like psychedelics um, are taking cues from how things have gone with weed, like how that process has taken, what did he say? It was like 30 years. It was like 1996 was one of the, the first times that 
uh, research was able to be done and, and, you know, it's taken 20 years to get kind of where it is now. Um, so both socially and on the more research side of things, you know, I feel like there's more of an openness here around weed, but, um, I don't notice it as much around psychedelics per se. Well, the, the, the cannabis, uh, aspect is, is kind of interesting in that, um, it, it's the, uh, I guess the NIDA monopoly has really limited the amount of medical research that can be done in cannabis. And, and so for, you know, for those 20 years, basically there's been one source of, of uh, cannabis for legal, uh, you know, for studies, basically for research. And it's not surprising that, you know, studies have been therefore much more costly and harder to do. Um, and that has only changed, I think in the last year, that was something Rick mentioned later in the broadcast that, um, yeah. you know, the, uh, I guess recently this came up, um, came up for, uh, you know, response from the DEA, about whether to, I guess, reschedule cannabis into like schedule two. Or deschedule it, yeah. Right. I, I think the, the the proposition was to to reschedule cannabis cannabis. Let's try making it, you know, schedule two versus schedule one, because we all know it can be medically beneficial. Well, Rick's perspective was, you know, th that's not actually scientifically proven. The research isn't there yet. Um, to, you know, to reschedule cannabis. We, I mean, we may all know it to be intuitively true and true in practice and all that, but the research simply hasn't been done for that same reason that we haven't been able to uh, fund these studies as easily as they should be, be done. Um, and, but while, while the DEA, you know, agreed with that and, and basically uh, declined to reschedule cannabis, they also broke the NIDA monopoly on providing cannabis for uh, research. Um, so that will probably change things much more quickly, we hope, uh, in the foreseeable future. But, you know, that's one reason why I think it's taken so long specifically to, uh, to, to make any progress in the, in the cannabis uh, movement. I'm glad we talked about this because that was something I didn't really know about during the interview. And um, it just kind of like came and went. And I was like, ooh, that seemed important. <laughs> so thanks for bringing that back up. Yeah. Well, Rick, you know, Rick's point about that was kind of interesting. Um, you know, he was not for uh, the rescheduling of cannabis. He's a very scientifically minded guy, very like reasonable person. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, he said uh, that the research simply wasn't there yet to reschedule cannabis. So he's in favor of deschedulizing cannabis first because it should never have been put in schedule one. So first we deschedule it and we sort of take it off the, uh, the federal, you know, register of uh, banned substances. And, and then, of course, consider, you know, through research whether to schedule it and at what, uh, you know, at what uh, point, uh, schedule two, mm -hmm. schedule three, et cetera. Um, and so that was something I also learned about through that, um, that conversation as well. And he said that it um, allowed the DEA to basically look like they were being, you know, strong about, about cannabis, against cannabis by not, you know, considering to reschedule it. But at the same time, they were able to, you know, end that night of monopoly uh, to, you know, as being a source of cannabis for medical studies. Uh, so that's overall very good for the industry. This is also another awesome point about Rick Doblin is apart from sort of the sort of the scientific background you mentioned and how uh, how sort of strict and rigid he is about the science. Um, he's also, you know, he studied at the Kennedy School of Government. That's sort of uh, political science is also his other area of expertise. And it's what's been able to uh, get him so far with maps. And uh, he also made the point that you know, these, these kind of social changes, um, you know, and he was, and he, he was able to see something like, like what the DA did there and say like, ah, oh, this is actually a victory, you know, this is a way to save face, but then also make a change that's really important that will, you know, be, you know, very important down the road. Um, and then he also mentioned that, you know, social change movements 
uh, don't come from the top down like they never have. It's never it's never been like, you know, the president just gets into office and then makes something, you know, makes some big social change uh, that people weren't expecting. It's it's actually quite the opposite. It's that, you know, it starts very, very slowly with uh, with people. And then as more as the movement grows, it becomes politically interesting to take uh, this, you know, whatever the group's uh, side is in the matter. Um, and he mentioned specifically people coming out about different things, you know, it's like, well, why has marijuana been legalized? Well, it's because it became more and more normal. It became, people became a little bit more comfortable admitting that they used it. Um, and that, you know, he, he also mentioned the role of public education, but, but I think he, you know, he kind of, his emphasis was saying like, let's talk about this a little bit more, you know? I think let's, it was mostly uh, due to the band Cypress Hill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, man. Yeah, that was a great point Rick made. And it was it was to one of the questions you asked him at the very end of the interview, uh, Kev, you, you know, <laughs> I think it was right. I'm reading through my notes and I have an asterisk here that Kev, you take takes rip off joint. Then <laughs> what would you tell I, the listeners? Of I, at least I, I was not in the deep plyo when I did it. You know, like, <laughs> nor I was in an RV, but I was, I was, you know, not driving and I was definitely under the speed limit. So, yeah. um, what would you, you know, you're asking him, you know, at, at the very end, like kind of what, what's some parting words? Like, what would you tell the listeners of Entheogen? Like, how can we help and how can anyone listening help? And then he comes in to make that that point. You know, it's all about people coming out um, and having the courage um, to to be honest about their interest. And so maybe, you know, Joe, reconsidering your question about sort of what's happening in the Bay Area, it's I, it's strange. But I have had co- very open conversations with people that I work with, even in a you know traditional office environment. And it's hard for me to imagine talking to people like that in New York, at least for the most part. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah, getting comfortable with it, normalizing it, um, listening I, to the music of Cypress Hill. <laughs> I've definitely taken that approach since the interview. I think like that what Rick said left uh, a mark on me, and I think um, it also puts into context sort of what Maps has been doing uh, over the course of the last year with the psychedelic dinners. Um, so you know, sort of getting people to sponsor dinners at their house with with friends and people they think might be receptive to the to the topic, just to kind of share information and stories and you know. And I think it's uh, since then for me at least, I've I've kind of um, broached the topic here and there, I've just just to measure people's receptivity a little bit. And uh, and I'm quite surprised to find that there's always a, a few more people in every group that uh, that, you know, I never in a million years would think they'd be interested or have any curiosity or at least not be prejudiced about something. Um, and, and you find them there. They're around. So, you know, Cypress Hill has been uh, <laughs> quite successful. <laughs> well, a great place to find them is, as you mentioned, uh, psychedelicdinners.org. Uh, these are ongoing. Um, I think they sprang up to um, uh, fund uh, or, or raise money uh, for uh, MAPS's uh, 30th anniversary. And I guess they were raising money for, uh, you know, a, I guess a kilogram of MDMA. Is that, is that what it was? Uh, for yeah. these, I mean, uh, I for mean the really, is there, is there any better dinner than a kilo of MDMA? <laughs> <laughs> I was particularly interested in in this question, uh, especially also as a a former teacher. You know, it's it's you have uh, this kind of rolling around in your head all the time. It's like, well, how 
what's the proper way to bring this subject up or, or broach it? And not, maybe not even bring it up, but it's it's kind of in your face sometimes because uh, especially I've noticed with students, they'd have kind of certain questions and they come to you and ask uh, advice or uh, or I famously had to sit, you know, it, it, when you're a kid and you go through the D.A.R.E. program, it's one thing. But when you're a teacher <laughs> and you're, um, you know, a fan of the, the whole subject and then you have to sit there and listen to misinformation uh, in front of a big group of your students, it's quite uh, it's quite difficult. As you think about, you know, what what is the proper way to talk about this? And I'm not, you know, and I'm definitely not saying like, oh, yeah, just, you know, just come straight out with the whole thing. But um, so I thought it was a fascinating question and just see kind of how uh, these people answered it. And and Alex and Allison Gray obviously had made it kind of a point to like to, to not drive that underground and, and to be open about it and then actually to share in the marijuana smoking with their daughter. And uh, so I don't know. I, it, it did, my mind's not made up for sure, but I definitely think it's a fascinating uh, area to, t- to discuss. Well, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, point there about, you know, what to do in a sort of public uh, circumstance like that where someone might be spouting some misinformation. And sure, uh, it's, it's come up, you know, at, at various times where, where you hear a friend might say something like, well, you know, LSD stays in your spine for 40 years. And you're like, you know, uh, th- that's wrong. Uh, let me excuse me. Yeah. That's totally wrong. <laughs> you know, it's just not true. Uh, yeah. Allow me to correct you. Um, but if, if that's happening, uh, let's say at work and, you know, somebody is making some sort of derogatory <laughs> comments about, you know, you know uh, psychedelics or something like that and is a group of coworkers standing around, you know, how much uh, do you proactively, uh, you know, sort sure. of jump in and, and correct things? Because it's, it's a case where, uh, you know, the more you know about it, a certain topic, the more sort of incriminating it seems, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, I mean, it, which is kind of baffling that knowledge about something, you know, would, would be... Would, would serve to, uh, I don't know, somehow like label you in, in some way. But I think the more people that can stand up in those circumstances and come out, even if it's just, uh, you know, sort of like passively, you know, or Im- implicating yourself uh, passively as a, you know, either former, um, you know, user um, or ongoing user or whatever the case may be, or just <laughs> aficionado in some sense, um, you know, I think it's a really important thing to do there are all these new references that are kind of all over pop culture uh to to psychedelics and uh so it's kind of like you know who who are all these like the artists for example like i remember going to see the the movie avatar like 10 years ago and there's the most unbelievable like just the most psychedelic touch to that movie and then there's this shamanic scene where they're uh i don't don't remember what the substance they is it mushrooms that they eat in that film does anybody remember this i'm not sure but uh but there's just like an amazing just an unbelievable scene where that that goes down and i'm like this is becoming like more and more normal i remember it coming up in tv shows and i think so at least people are out there like taunting the the general public you know um, Lost was another one. I remember when that show came out; it was such a massive hit. And uh, and very early in the first season, there was a sort of a scene where somebody needed to find, figure something out, like find out something about themselves. And uh, and basically, an, another person in the show makes them like an ayahuasca sort of mix, and he has this unbelievable trip, and then figures out what he needs to do. And uh, so I think more and more we're seeing these things like pop up, and it's not uh, as stigmatized as it was before, at least. Yeah. There's a great scene in Back to the Future 1 um, that I remembered watching as an adult and thinking how when I was a kid I had no idea what I was watching <laughs> when yeah. they're outside of the, the high school dance and the band, like they, they throw Marty in the trunk of a car and they slam the, the trunk 
and then the doors of the car open up and smoke billows out the doors and it's the band (laughs) (laughs) they're like huh you know it's like i i think about uh, experiences like that when i think about like how you know what about the children like how do you talk to that you know like at what point do you become honest about what's happening and you know what what can really be understood i also probably I was talking to someone recently about having seen Pulp Fiction at like a really young age and having no idea what a lot of what was being discussed. But the thought of like showing that movie to a child seemed preposterous to me, <laughs> given the subject matter. What do, what, yeah, do you yeah, think the, um, what do you think the broader sort of like resistance to this has been in, in culture? You know, is it uh, is it just uh, like a, a top down kind of uh, instilling of fear about, you know, being prosecuted? Uh, I think or it's, a, it's like a um I would guess it's more of like a sheltering, you know, it's wanting to wanting to help, you know, not coming from a a negative place, but coming from a positive place, but inadvertently, you know, over sheltering someone. I I don't know. That's my take. Yeah, I I, I would I would agree with you. It's sort of like, why even ask this question? Right. It's like if I can just avoid it, he's like my child's definitely going to be better off. Right. It's like, they, they, you know, it's it's a, it's a question that doesn't need to be asked or something. It's like, let's just uh, keep keep this away from him. Uh, but it seems to be, you know, it's a, it's a policy that also gets extended to other topics of uh, of education. Right. Like, you know, sex ed is the other one that comes to mind um, where, you know, it's the, the D.A.R.E. program equivalent was sort of what was taught before. And now it's been liberalized a little bit, at least in most places. Um, so, so maybe, you know, just in general, things are opening up more and more and there's more of a a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, like a, a more enlightened way of, uh, of, of trying to educate children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Alex uh, explained it in, in the interview as, uh, or maybe it was Rick as a a sort of discomfort with spirituality in a materialist society. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was Alex. You know, suppression of the psyche, that whole aspect of it. Um, but you know, some hopeful, uh, signs here, uh, for example, um, MAPS has been working on expanding uh, to the family members of patients with PTSD, uh, allowing MDMA to be administered to the spouse, for example, of, uh, of the yeah. actual patient, uh, which is, I mean, that's amazing. It's a little bit of a, um, I don't know, like a, a foot in the door uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Great um, marketing strategy. <laughs> totally. I love, totally. Love it. It's like, it's like uh, like six degrees of Kevin Bacon or something, you know. It's like, it's right. like through this policy, we can get to everybody in the country within like right. one year. I live next door to a to a vet. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other aspect is um, uh, writing in, uh, you know, more and more broad uh, sort of like uh, patient, um, you know, definitions. Like so, for example, there's an MDMA study for veterans and first responders. Uh, including, you know, firefighters and police officers um, mm-hmm. that MAPS is doing. Uh, they have 26 people in the study uh, and uh, 22 are veterans, but they ha- also have three firefighters, uh, including one with PTSD from 9-11 and a police officer uh, in the study. And that was, um, you know, that was kind of a long shot. The idea was to actually just write this in the title of the study just so that like you could, you know, apply it to this this broader audience, not only veterans, but also first responders. And in fact, they did get uh, interest from from three firefighters and a police officer, uh, just among these, you know, 26 total uh, participants. So that's another really good sign where it's just, you know, sort of very slowly broadening the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the patient, uh, you know, um, population, uh, that these substances can apply to. Well, also what we talked about before, right. It's like about people 
kind of speaking up and being a little bit more free to admit certain things. It's like, well, you know, where are the, the like the least receptive crowds in the world uh, about these sort of topics? And it's, you know, it's definitely has to be in governmental institutions where there's testing of all kinds of, and just a more conservative mentality. Right. Um, so, so, you know, how important is it to get someone like a police officer, you know, apart from the just the straight up absolute value that it has that somebody like a police officer, a firefighter who's in a, a situation of ongoing stress daily uh, can, you know, can use a medicine like this. Uh, apart from that, you know, it's what the experience they bring back and what they tell their other workmates and um, just kind of extending the uh, the knowledge, right? Like in, in like a very... Um, a very sort of vacuum sealed place where that would never uh, normally get. Right. And just also making them more compassionate for the, uh, you know, the, this selective enforcement of, of certain laws and things, you know, they might um, opt to get uh, someone help who may be struggling with the psychedelic experience as opposed to throwing them in jail, you know, for the night to sleep it off kind of thing. Right. I, I'd, I'd be a fan of like just watching, you know, like the typical, police video cams we're seeing all over Facebook right now of just cops on MDMA while they arrest people. <laughs> you know, it's just a, it would be a fantastic YouTube series, right? It's just, that's all right, man. It's fine. Just like, give them a hug. You know, forget, <laughs> forget about it. You know, just go on with your day. That was Entheogen. Elevate the conversation. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. Mm-hmm.